0: Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Center for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is Hannes Gisharasan, Professor of Politics at the University of Iceland, and Director of Research at RNH, which is the Icelandic Research Centre for Innovation and Economic Growth. He is a, a learned man, been on governing boards of banks, visiting scholars in America, holds a P-D fill in politics, and also once ran a pirate radio station. Welcome, Hannes.
1: Well, I'm delighted that you're having me.
0: Well, let's start with the most important part of your um, CV, the pirate radio station, if you don't mind. <laughs> What's oh, the pirate yes, radio station got to do with liberalism? And I noticed you mentioned in the, your introduction to your excellent two-volume book, 24 Conservative Liberal Thinkers, that the medieval theologian St. Thomas Aquinas was also when you are thinking about the radio station. Can you bring them all together for us?
1: Yes, I claimed uh, St. Thomas Aquinas as an ally. And the reason he is my ally is that uh, basically he argued uh, that uh, the national law applied to kings as well as uh, to the population, to the people. And uh, there was, uh, even if he was a cautious and uh, moderate conservative, there was uh, a right to rebellion if you thought that uh, uh, the the law was unjust, it wasn't really for the public good. And in Iceland, we had a situation uh, for uh, many years where we had a government monopoly of broadcasting, and I felt that that was unjust. But probably... A rebellion against it was not uh, justifiable under uh, St. Thomas Aquinas' principles, unless there were special situations. And the special situation that arose in uh, the autumn of 1984 was that uh, the uh, newspapers uh, men had uh, gone on strike, and so had the uh, radio people. So there was basically, there were no media in Iceland. And I and a few of my friends, we started a pirate radio station just to uh, propagate this, just to um, make news available to, to, to the population. Basically, it had, everything had been turned off uh, by, by the strikers. And what happened was that the police chased us for eight days, and they finally closed uh, the uh, radio station. But we enjoyed the widespread sympathy with the population, And uh, it was actually uh, agreed the next year that uh, the government monopoly of broadcasting was abolished. So this was a successful political action in the spirit of St. (laughs)
0: St. Thomas Aquinas, And an application of what you call conservative liberalism, which is your theme in your book and your work. How is that an application of conservative liberalism, running a pirate radio station against a government monopoly?
1: Well, what we have to do is to uh, limit the power of government, uh, to work against the public good. And uh, I I would actually use uh, three catchwords to describe uh, conservative liberalism. It would be free trade, private property and limited government. And it was limited government that we wanted. We didn't want the... Uh, government really to to have a monopoly on what we could do or say um, on the airwaves, and uh, we thought it was uh, something that was a fluke, uh, that was something out of the ordinary. If we, if we were going to have a freedom of the press, then we should also have the freedom of uh, the airwaves. Uh, that was our our view in uh, in you Iceland. In oh,
0: yes. Now you, you you write that you don't regard liberalism, and you can I ask first thing you have put the word conservative in front of the word liberalism. What what explain why 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 that word's there?
1: Yes, because there are actually uh, types of conservatism that are not liberal, and there are also types of liberalism that are not conservative. Uh, what I tried to do was to define a special political position that I identify, and uh, I, I think is shared by people like David Hume and others and uh, most profoundly by Friedrich Hayek, because uh, Friedrich Hayek's uh, great question is, why is it that we, despite individual ignorance, are able to achieve so much uh, with our culture? And uh, his answer, briefly, is that it is because we avail ourselves of a system of private property rights and free trade and uh, the price mechanism, but also uh, of traditions, conventions, Uh, and uh, more. So so it follows from his uh, whole uh, theoretical uh, framework, both actually uh, great support of free trade and private property, and also respect for traditions and the intermediary institutions Mm. that uh, soften uh, the grip of power on us. Uh, What we have to do, and uh, this is really uh, Hayek's uh, great contribution, Uh, is to realize that the dispersal of knowledge requires the dispersal of power and decisions. Uh, So that that,
0: that devolution, decentralization. And in fact, as I understand him, if you centralize knowledge, you don't know as much to run things properly. It can't be done. It can't be done.
1: You have to decentralize power because uh, knowledge by its nature is decentralized. Because a lot of it is personal knowledge, or knowledge of time and place. Take, for example, skills. Uh, they're extremely uneven. Some people have skills in one thing, and so other people have skills in other things. The knowledge how to do things, and they can't be uh, taken into or accumulated in a computer and used to, to make central decisions. And this is basically his refinement and reinforcement of Ludwig von Mises' argument against socialism. Already in 1920, As I tell the story in my book, Ludwig von Mises had uh, given a paper in Vienna where he had uh, explained that uh, basically uh, socialism was unable to achieve its uh, goals because they couldn't make make the the correct calculations. And uh, what Hayek did was to take this argument, which is correct in its uh, own proper place, and make it into a much more general argument against centralization of
0: uh, decisions. Against centralization i read somewhere recently that one of the problems with this kind of thinking Hayek and uh, the many others in your book is that we grow up thinking that that um the best way things are change is by making decisions top down we control things and yet Hayek and others are saying that in fact when you get to the to a, to a, to a society that doesn't work this in fact there needs to be a kind of I'm not sure it's quite the right word. Spontaneous order—an order, an order a, dis, a spontaneous order that occurs when people make decisions based upon their own smaller area together, and the whole thing grows. This is, in a sense, hard to—it doesn't seem natural at first. It's somewhat counterproductive, counterintuitive, and therefore it needs to be explained. Am, am I making sense?
1: Yes, you are. And uh, let, let me put it uh, a little bit differently. People have traditionally spoken about the two things that will drive us uh, further. One is the stick, and the other one is the carrot. That is to say, the fear of loss and the hope for profit. The, but this the, is the, not the, enough. Yep.
0: This is the not stick, enough. The stick or the carrot? Not the, uh, Yes, yes, yep. yes.
1: The stick and the carrot. This yep. is not enough, because we have to know in which direction to run. And <laughs> uh, that is where the, where the signal comes in. And this is precisely highest contribution. We all knew that we would run faster if we had a, 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 a carrot in front of us and a stick behind us. Of course, yes, but we have to know where to go. And we can only do that if we get the necessary information through the price mechanism and through traditional morality. And that is basically the argument. So, so the two things
0: are, they seem so, so different to it, don't they? The price mechanism, which is what people will pay for this good or service or product and traditional morality which is, in a sense, what? a very different kind of thing. It's, you're bringing together God and Mammon. And,
1: <laughs> well, actually, yes, you're absolutely right that there is a tension between the two because uh, most people, they, they need a foreseeable firm foundation and predictability and continuity in their life. No, no question about that. But on the other hand, you also need the creative destruction of capitalism, innovation, uh, entrepreneurs, that upset uh, equilibria. Mm. So we need both of them, and there is always, within uh, conservative liberalism, attention. But this is what makes it both fruitful and uh, and persuasive, because uh, we we really don't want to live in a society which has no innovations and is just... um, um, has no change, but you do not want to live either in a society where everything is in a flux and you can't really predict the behavior of others and there is no continuity. So, and uh, and, and, and one other thing about all this is we must never neglect uh, the civil society. Uh, uh, Conservative liberalism uh, believes that there is uh, not only the free market, as good as it is, but also civil society with all uh, the uh, little... Uh, platoons uh, that yes. Burke spoke about yeah. uh, all the associations and um, uh, <clears throat> and o- o- other entities. Uh, uh, Burke actually thought that uh, traditional morality involved uh, monarchy, as you have in Australia. <laughs> and uh,
0: it's a uh, long way away from us in Australia. <laughs> in practice, we're not a monarchy, but we are. We are. Yes, yes,
1: I know, but I think actually in some countries, monarchy is like the gold standard. It really works because uh, it. Um, Instills respect in people. For yep. Yep. No, you I'd know, the, if you if, if you have a coin made of gold, you respect the currency. Yep. If you have a monarch, then uh, you know it is much more of a glory to go to get a medal in a palace uh, from uh, somebody <laughs> who is a representative of a family that has been there for 1,000 one one years. So I, I believe that the argument for monarchy, mm. tongue in cheek, obviously is that uh, the elected politicians, the battle scar politicians, they shouldn't get all the glory that may uh, stem from a state that has been uh, uh, around for 1,000 years.
0: Yes. So liberalism alone by itself, you're saying, can become destructive in the sense that it it tears down, it it, it, it attacks those intervening institutions. I mean, there's that marvellous... Marx, I think, got a lot of success because he was such a brilliant writer. Well, I'm not sure he's a great thinker, but all that vanishes turns into air. He described the complete commercialization of society where nothing but the dollar counted, and this would destroy, he thought, uh, be- uh, would destroy all other institutions. And uh, you're saying that that is true, but we have to have conservatives to stop it, or that true liberalism doesn't do that because true liberalism must involve traditions as well and not just be pure economics.
1: Well, I think actually that uh, what happens is that uh, capitalism destroys uh, some uh, uh, things, as uh, Marx uh, describes, and Tocqueville had the, the same, uh, the same oh, yes. worries as uh, many others. Surely uh, that's correct, but we must also understand the great self-corrective powers of a free civilization. Hmm. Uh, let me just put it this way. Uh, Shakespeare he uh, was an individualist because Romeo and Juliet, they were individuals who stepped out of the traditional roles as uh, members of the Capulet and Montague families. But, you know, under normal circumstances, they would have formed a new family. So it wasn't only a rebellion against the old family, it would have been the foundation of a new family. And this is what happens in under uh, capitalism. Uh, you may break up a minus village and Wales because... Uh, It has become an economic uh, or a farmer's village in the Alps. But uh, people move to uh, cities and there they form new associations and communities. And what is essential is to facilitate the formation of new associations and moralities and groups and uh, uh, informal social monitoring. At the same time as we provide continuity. So essentially what this uh, is, is evolution instead of revolution. Uh, What we have to do is to uh, facilitate uh, that people uh, can uh, implement their little dreams, each in their own little corner, but that we should not impose any one dream on society. Because if you try to do that, an intellectual stream of reconstructing society, then you will end up with a nightmare, as you saw under socialism in China and Russia.
0: I was going to ask you, the alternative to conservative liberalism, the, the great opponent of conservative liberalism, is the belief that the world can be made better by top-down planning by the really fine experts. The the and and this is still 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 an attractive option for people in their mind that that it can be solved by this top-down leadership. Why do you think that is so attractive still? If 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 uh, conservative liberalism is self-correcting and works better, why are there so many people who don't believe in it?
1: Well, I think actually they are the, they are essentially intellectuals who believe in reconstructing society. Yeah. The ordinary man uh, is faithful to capitalism. Everybody who is sort of an ordinary person wants to go to a less free, to a more free country from um, uh, North Korea to South Korea, from Mexico to uh, Texas and, and from Venezuela to Florida. So, if given the choice, the ordinary men and women, they, they want to go to capitalism and out of socialism. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to emphasize, though, that uh, nevertheless, material well-being is only one facet uh, of conservative liberalism. We shouldn't uh, we shouldn't belittle it at all. But uh, you know, man is more than a maximizing machine. Man is a choosing agent uh, who has uh, aspirations. And uh, the utilitarian approach and the economic approach to uh, to uh, economic affairs, it may be good at telling us how many uh, coins we'll have it in the pocket, but it can't tell us uh, it can tell us what we can have, but it can't tell us what we are or want to be, what are our aspirations uh, and 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 so on. So I think that economics tell us about the constraints that uh, our uh, choices are subject to, but uh, they can't choose for us because we, we are choosing agents ourselves.
0: In your book, in your book, two, two volume, you, you, you talk about a tradition, a tradition traced back to the medieval idea that government is to be by consent and not by power. Um, in a way, that's so obvious to us, we think today, we forget that that was not obvious for many people, for many parts of, of, of life and still not with the world today.
1: Quite so, and uh, that, that actually uh, fits in nicely with your contrast between the top-down and the uh, down-top uh, thing. Yeah, You know, Snorri Sturdjson, for example, uh, he was a great spokesman of the Icelandic Chronicler of the old legal tradition, which was that uh, customary law was more or less um, developed uh, by consensus, uh, um, by the wise old man who knew the law. And then uh, Aquinas came with natural law, and both of them, uh, thought in, uh, in terms of constraints of government. And I think that's uh, an essential uh, feature of, of conservative liberalism. It is not really, well, it is both optimistic and pessimistic. Uh, it is pessimistic like conservatism in that uh, we recognize that each individual has very little knowledge, including the intellectuals who are offering to govern us. Everybody has uh, little knowledge. But what we can do is to join together and enjoy uh, and accumulate um, social capital as some people have called it the moral capital Uh, and that has been done in the west and i include of course australia new zealand uh, as parts of this western tradition that i'm talking about we can avail ourselves of thousands of years of experience uh, of the wisdom of our ancestors and so on but that is also to be subject to revision obviously we we will reject some uh, traditions, but we will create others. So, yes, capitalism is uh, destructive, but it is at the same time creative, especially uh, freedom. The only, uh, the only remedy to freedom is more freedom.
0: <laughs> more freedom. And you're, and you're convinced that history shows that this actually is the method by which humans flourish. Freedom is, is, is the main way which people flourish. You think that, that, that can be shown historically?
1: Uh, I think actually a, a case can be made for uh, artists and others uh, having uh, rendered a lot of service to kings and popes in the past, yep. but uh, on the whole, I think that uh, individuals, they flourish the best uh, when they are free to experiment and innovate or just to, as uh, uh would say, enjoy themselves in their uh, narrow circle of friends and family and uh, being playful. Uh, you know, doing all kinds of things for, for their own sake, and not simply in order to
0: collect more money. Now, it's interesting. You you start in, me, in medieval Europe, and m- not all, but most of your figures are European, in or at least European background. In fact, towards the end of your introduction, you say that you emphasise that these twenty five very different people, uh, covering a long, very different philosophers, theologians. Economists, prime ministers, novelists, in one or two cases, um, they all uh, talk about the value of choice, and you say, which is a commitment to, indeed, a celebration of Judeo Christian Western civilization. Um, and conservatism, as you say, is the self consciousness of Western civilization. Um, I think, I think you've shown that from my point of view. Does this mean that, that conservative liberalism is inevitably tied up with, with, with the West?
1: Um, I actually discussed this uh, in the chapter on Hayek, and uh, I referred to a discussion that I had in Sydney in Australia yep. with uh, two, uh, two distinguished scholars from whom I learned a lot. And I would consider them to be liberal conservatives, whereas I was a conservative liberal. They were Kenneth Minogue, and my supervisor at Oxford, John Gray. And uh, what I basically argued there was that even if freedom is more of a skill than uh, uh, an object or anything like that, uh, an aim, it's more of a skill, it's a product of our civilization rather than something that we can look forward to, even if that's true, in principle, uh, liberty can't be enjoyed by all human beings. Uh, so everybody is fit for freedom. Whereas I think that some of the conservatives who are not liberals as well, they think that this is just a, we- a product of the West and cannot be enjoyed by anyone else. What I'm not advocating at all is uh, liberal imperialism so that we would just impose our values on uh, other societies. They have to choose them themselves uh, if choice is relevant as a criterion yes. for them. But uh, basically, I think that uh, uh, freedom is a universal value, but that it came into being and was developed I- I- in the West, as a result of what due to Christian uh, <coughs> uh, c- c- civilization. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, a consciously Hegelian uh, approach to say that um, yes. conservative the self-consciousness of Western civilization. Because uh, Hegel, of course, uh, taught that uh, freedom was uh, the the Weltgeist or the world spirit. The
0: world spirit, yes.
1: Conscious of of himself.
0: Uh, You're not not buying Hegel. You're not Hegelian, though, are you? I hope.
1: No, I I, I, I did not include Hegel or John Stuart Mill in the book. uh, That that was interesting. Both uh, were
0: not there, actually.
1: Yes. uh, Mill was often
0: appealed to. Yes.
1: Hegel was uh, too much of an um, authoritarian, although he was, you, you could actually provide a liberal uh, interpretation of Hegel. And Mill, even if Mill was also in many ways a liberal, he was definitely more of a radical liberal and a romantic individualist who, did, who rejected a lot of traditions that I find necessary for the maintenance and stability and continuity of our, our society. Uh, so, and, and in his um, last years, he uh, doubled in socialism, obviously.
0: How important is the Judeo-Christian part of Western civilization? Do you think liberalism is grounded fundamentally, in the past anyway, in a religious worldview?
1: Well, if it is true, which I argue in the book, that uh, basically liberalism is the extension of the moral vision to uh, the whole of mankind, then I think uh, that... Uh, can be rooted in uh, the, the Christian notion of everybody having a soul and everybody being a child of God and everybody being cast in the image of God. Because for God, uh, uh, for <clears throat> everybody is equal, uh, white and black, uh, man and woman, rich and poor. That's basically the idea, the extension of the moral vision to the whole of mankind. And that is a, a Christian uh, n- n- notion, I-, I would think. I would like to uh, add that uh, you you can be an atheist and a very good conservative liberal. Oh but yes, no, people,
0: uh, My question uh, wasn't about that. It was really asking uh, the question: if if it came from that that cr- was born in that context, that cradle, will uh, will conservative liberalism survive if it's cut off from its religious roots? Does it have a life of its own? Because in many of the Western countries and I'm sure it's the same, I don't know what, what things are like in Iceland, where you are, there's been a sig- very significant decline in the power or influence of, uh, of the Christian religion.
1: Yes, I, I think that uh, basically religion may not be uh, crucial or indispensable. It's more a traditional morality. And um, you see, for example, both the Japanese and the old Romans, they were not particularly religious, but they had a, a strong traditional morality. So I think that, Civil society is based on the family, on property and on some kind of shared morality that makes your behavior predictable and uh, provides for continuity. So I would, uh, <clears throat> I would say not necessarily religion, but uh, something
0: that you take for granted. Yes, although I'm, I'm, I'm no expert on either Romans or the Japanese, but I know that classical society was not one believed in the equality of people. <laughs> Very much not so. It, that was brought in by the Christian revolution, I believe.
1: Quite, but that, that's a particular kind of equality. It's equality yeah. before the law, not yeah. equality of outcomes.
0: The Romans because, did not believe in equal dignity in the way that we do today.
1: Yes, equal humanhood, you know, humanity. It was the old Catholic uh, conception of uh, Universitas hominum, which I learned at school when I was a, a kid. <laughs>
0: I'm Rob Forsyth, and this is the Liberalism in Question. My guest today is Hannes Girarsson from the University of Iceland. He's speaking to me from Iceland, as a matter of fact, uh, where it's... Uh, is Iceland, by the way, this is totally irrelevant to our conversation, is it always icy in Iceland? Not at all. Um, oh, good. We... Iceland,
1: Iceland is relatively green, and Greenland is uh, oh, well, relatively you white. You know, these are, are both misnomers, and we had this uh, wonderful idea to give this... Uh, Name to the country, so we would be left alone by the rest of the world. And so we have been, because we have been an isolated outpost and um, for 1,000 years.
0: And there is a special contribution of Icelanders to conservative liberalism. You have a special contribution, you say? Well,
1: I think that, uh, uh, for example, the, uh, the system of fisheries, uh, surprisingly. Fisheries? Is a Yes, it's a good um, example of the extension of uh, private property rights uh, to uh, a new resource because essentially we have in Iceland and actually also New Zealand and to some extent in Australia a system of individual transferable quotas and they are uh, are or can be regarded as uh, private property rights uh, to uh, the fish stocks and that was absolutely necessary because if you have a limited resource, you have to have limited access to the resource, otherwise it will be overutilized. This is
0: uh, well known. Yes. The uh, tragedy of the commons. Yes, quite so. Quite so. Can I ask, uh, pull back a little to a bigger question. What are the threats to conservative liberalism today that that you see in the world?
1: I think there are uh, three uh, threats that I see which uh, are imminent. Uh, one of them may be more of a nuisance than a danger, and that is Islamic fundamentalism. I think that perhaps it is overestimated. Uh, I think it can be easily dealt with. Then uh, there is uh, China and Russia. These countries they reject uh, Western individualism, freedom of choice, not really private property. It is true that capitalism is the only game in town, and uh, the. <clears throat> The rulers of those two countries, they recognize that, but they are um, are aggressive, especially China. China has uh, changed uh, her role over the last uh, 15 years, has become much more aggressive than it used to be militant and building up uh, a strong military, and it's a very powerful uh, country. So this is a, a threat. Uh, like uh, in some ways uh, there were threats uh, from totalitarian uh, regimes uh, between the wars. Then uh, the third threat is really uh, the threat for internal threat from the woke culture and cancel culture, where uh, uh, people are being deprived of freedom of speech. And uh, the uh, the academy and the media have been largely taken over by left-wingers, because we have to realize that uh, Marx is dead and Marxism was killed by its in- implementation in Russia and China. But the Marxists in the West, they are still alive and they teach at universities and in uh, children's schools and so on. And people are now seeing, uh, I think, the results of the domination of the lefting intellectuals in in, in in education.
0: How are they a threat to, to uh, the notion of Consent in government, a freedom, freedom of, um, of property, free trade. What's the nature of their threat? I can understand totalitarian super superpowers. I can understand a politicised religion. Tell us more about what you think the danger is from within and, and why it is such a danger, if it is.
1: Yeah, yes, I can do that. Uh, basically. It's now thought that corporations shouldn't aim at profit; uh, they should uh, be uh, heavily taxed. This will uh, stifle entrepreneurship and uh, wealth creation. And uh, we it still remains to be seen whether uh, the great easing of monetary uh, restraint uh, will result in inflation, which will be very distorting to, to the economy. But then obviously we see in universities and, the, and in the and in the media uh, censorship, self-censorship, and other kinds of censorship, which is very worrying. In, in my own university, you know, in a decent, civilized society, almost everybody is a social democrat. There is no questioning. There is no uh, awareness of individual responsibility for your activities, and uh, there is no. Um, you are looked upon, or or the ordinary man is looked upon as a patient, uh, uh, not, not as a, an agent, uh, not as somebody who's responsible for his or her uh, actions, and there is nobody who uh, speaks in the media for the taxpayer or the consumer. It's only those who spend money who are there, and th- they could do well by reading the very lively writings of William Graham Sumner, uh, to whom I devote a, a chapter in my book, uh, he, uh, he discusses the forgotten man. And the forgotten man is the man who always has to pay the bill. And uh, he has been even more forgotten now than he has been in the, in the past.
0: And um, reading your book reminds me of, of a kind of, I don't know if it's, tri- if it's fair to put it, there was a high moment in which conservative liberal ideas had a strong following, at least in the West, I'm not talking about the West here, uh, when uh, Friedman... Reagan—I Ray, don't know if I can count Reagan, but Thatcher—they're somewhat controversial figures. But but one felt there was a drift. Hayek, there was a drift after the after the war, in the 70s and 80s. What's changed that that now seems to have faded? Do we need? Yes. First, my, my second question will be: and if it has, what's needed to, to return back to what you believe should be should be happening? Firstly, what happened? What?
1: well I think actually that uh, uh, the uh, demise of what uh, people call ne- neoliberalism has been uh, exaggerated if we if we look for example at the financial crisis of 2008 to nine then essentially I think it can be explained by the Austrian uh, theory of b- business cycle namely that monetary expansion prior to the crisis led to a correction
0: but um, you say that you do say that but you don't believe that Global financial crisis was a crisis of liberal economics in itself, but 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 the, but the mishandling of economics.
1: Well, I think so, actually uh, the origins of the crisis were uh, an in, inability to price risk on the one hand, and yeah. then uh, government uh, subsidies uh, on on the other hand. Uh, but what is interesting is that the remedy for the financial crisis was not Keynesianism. It was a Friedmanism. It was to, uh, Friedman had published his book and uh, argued that uh, the the, the, uh, depression in the United States had become a world crisis in 1929 to 1933 because uh, the central bank hadn't provided sufficient liquidity to commercial banks. That was his thesis. And what uh, people learned from it and what they did in the crisis of 2008 and nine was to provide sufficient liquidity to banks. may have gone too far but uh, the irony is that people think that this is somehow defeat of liberalism when actually the explanation for the crisis is uh, from hayek and the remedy of the crisis is from friedman
0: my uh, that may well be so my question isn't so much about what it was in fact but the, the impression has been given, the zeitgeist, if I could use that language, the um, liberalism seems to be now much more questioned. Uh, neoliberalism, if, if there ever, ever was such a thing, is uh, almost always taken as a criticism and concerns about inequ, un, inequity, um, growing in unequalness, it is believed, um, is really very serious today. My question is, why was that? Do you know, w- why has liberalism fallen out of favour, even if it shouldn't have?
1: Well, I think it will never actually be in favour uh, because it goes against uh, strong strengths in human nature. But there was a, a period, it's quite... Could you explain true. that
0: further? Yeah, That I mean, last comment, uh, but first. It goes yes. against strong traits in human nature, liberalism.
1: Uh, y- yes, because uh, you, you have to accept, uh, for example, unequal distribution of uh, income and so on, and and uh, you, <coughs> you reject uh, the... Um, uh, the law of the tribe, which is to share all the extra income and so on, you you allow people to keep for themselves what they create, and this is something that uh, some is unpopular with some people. So basically, uh, capitalism has always had to deal with uh, opponents. But for a while, from 1990 to 2008, uh, the socialists uh, they were totally incapacitated by the. Uh, debacle uh, by the ruins of, 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 of Soviet um, socialism and Chinese mm-hmm. communism. So they didn't have any answers and now they have more or less uh, rejuvenated. Uh, so things have returned to normal, which is that capitalism is uh, uh, slandered, uh, is unpopular, but you know it's still the only game in town. Nobody now uh, believes that we should introduce um, um, public ownership of the means of uh, production. No. That's not wrong.
0: Although the issue seems to have moved from economic to what you may call cultural issues, which is much harder to identity argue.
1: Policy,
0: yeah. yeah. Does that but mean that's, that... That's, uh,
1: actually a, 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 that's actually a symbol of uh, how uh, <coughs> how successful capitalism has been uh, because uh, we can afford to, uh, to engage in identity policy. It's a kind of a luxury uh, for us to do so. To count how many women and how many blacks are um, reporters or judges or something like that. This is something that uh, in the past would have been irrelevant because we, what we needed then was somebody who was efficient, not uh, the, uh, what he was, whether he was uh,
0: of dark color or the
1: wrong sex or something like that.
0: So in a way, this this cultural issue, which maybe may come or go, I don't know, is itself a sign of the success of the conservative liberal society. That's a fascinating, and interesting thought. I suppose uh, the conclusion I'm going to draw is that you've got 24 conservative liberal thinkers, but we're going to need more.
1: Uh, I, I, I would agree with you and we m- mustn't live in the past, even, yeah. if, even if we should respect the past. And I think uh, Berg uh, put it wonderfully when he said that the social contract is a partnership between the past, the present and the future and uh, the way to bring about this partnership is through private property rights and respect for the family and the uh, and uh, civil society and the uh, self-spontaneous uh, sp- uh, uh, forces of society
0: hannes girasen thank you very much indeed and thank you for getting up so early in iceland to talk to me here in sydney uh, hannes is the author of uh, a number of works but the one i was Basically, talking about was a, was a very very approachable work, quite accessible. Called Twenty Four Conservative Liberal Thinkers, it's it's easy to understand. It's well written, and Hannahs puts himself when he knows the people in the books in the book as well. And um, thank you very much indeed. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice, working to deliver evidence based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening.